Today's episode of Recovery Survey is fueled by Brainwash Coffee Company. I'm sure you've heard that drug and alcohol use is on the rise, especially during the pandemic. And Brainwash Coffee Company is working to raise money and awareness to support people seeking help. They donate 50% of their profits and their mission is to give back to the amazing recovery community. Their why is bold and their coffee is fresh. So if you want to sip on an amazing brew that warms your mind, body, and soul, then visit brainwashcoffeeco.com and use promo code recovery survey at checkout to get $5 off your first order. Brainwash Coffee Company, simple coffee for complicated people. You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles. I was always sure, somewhere on some deep level, that I was a horrible person. I was sure there was something just fundamentally flawed or wrong with me, and that's why these things happen. And I was desperate to find somebody to blame so that I wouldn't have to look at that pain. Because I discovered that underneath that concept of a flawed, broken human being, there was somebody really beautiful that I could love inside me. My guest today is named Casey Ariaga. He is a counselor, author, and podcaster. Welcome to the show, Casey. Thanks so much for having me. My name is Casey Ariaga, and I'm a clinical social worker and chemical dependency counselor. I'm a family member of people with addiction, lots of them, and uh, I'm a person in recovery myself for the past 24 years. I'm just really glad to be here. Hey, glad to have you on, man. And, and we were talking before we started recording. We both started our podcast at the exact same time. We've had some correspondence over the years, uh, and and we finally were able to get together and, and do an interview. So I'm excited, man. Just finished your book a couple of days ago, and I'm excited to to talk with you. Right on. Well, I'm I'm thrilled to be here, and uh, like like you said, we kind of started around the same time, and I've I'll like see a list of like great recovery podcast and you pop up on it. So when we got this together, I'm like, wow, this is really cool. Just kind of see, see where we all started and where we're at now and say, uh, I can never tell where something's going to go when I start it. And at this point I try not to make plans, I'm not very good at it, but I try not to make big plans. As, uh, someone said recently on a meeting that I really liked, you know, I'm in the action business, my higher powers and in the results business. And so I try and just do the part I'm supposed to do and then see where it goes from there. Mm, yeah, yeah, I love that, man. I love that. And, and like I told you before we started recording, I had no idea what I was doing. And I, I still don't really have any plans. I just show up and continue to put out recovery content. And, you know, it's helping people and it's helping me. So, you know, I'm just going to keep plugging away at the podcast. So yeah, man, that's awesome. And and for, for the, for people that aren't familiar, because we haven't said the name yet, you are the host of the addiction and the family podcast. Yes, that is a subject that's really close to my heart, very passionate, both professionally and personally. Like I said, I, I semi-jokingly say that I was conceived in addiction. Um, I was born into, uh, you know, to two birth parents who uh, both had a lot of addictive tendencies. One of them totally owns that. It's like, yeah, that's totally where I was at at the time. And the other one is like, no, I don't really see it. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm not here to diagnose anyone or force it on them. But 
I can look back and say like, okay, so they both had a lot of features, especially around sex and love addiction. And they got pregnant on the first date. That's me. Uh, you know, I look at all those things and go like, hey, so a lot of those hallmarks of addiction are there. And then um, I had some sexual abuse when I was young. And based on that, uh, between that and the genetics, there was maybe a larger push than average, but certainly I can say, not that I, I'm blaming two-year-old me, but just saying two-year-old me kind of started making decisions about how should I be in the world. And one of the big decisions that I made was I should spend a lot of time tuning out, escaping, or trying to get something to fill up that apparent lack in myself, what I thought was lacking. And then when I was about two and a half, I was put up for adoption. And I was adopted into a family that also had addiction issues where my dad had a very strong addiction to alcohol for his entire life. And again, I would have said it jokingly, but now knowing what I know from my education, it's like, well, it's not probably accurate. They, you know, you're looking for who's the right kid to join our family. Um, and I think there was something about the experiences that I've been through where they, they would look at it and go like, oh, okay, you know, something about this kid, just he seems like he fits around here. So I slid right into that situation, still on a mission to tune out, still on a mission to escape, but also really, you know, it, when, I think there was a, an interview with Eric Clapton quite a while back when they were like, what was your first drug? And he said, sugar. Uh, for me, I would say my first drug was like affirmation, that sense, like somebody wants me, somebody's looking at me, uh, a childhood friend sent me pictures recently on Facebook that I had not like maybe ever seen that she actually found them in her mom's picture collection after her mom passed away. And in almost every picture, I'm like mugging for the camera. I am trying to get that attention, all that kind of stuff. I got into food. I got into adrenaline, all that, all the stuff you can get a hold of as a kid. Um, and I actually avoided alcohol for quite a while. Like through my teenage years, I was like, oh, I don't drink. My dad's an alcoholic, you know? Oh, really sorry to hear that. But eventually, um, when I, so my first drink was actually a legal drink. I was on a plane to Europe with my wife. We were going over to play music and um, she said she was going to have whatever whiskey and Coke. And, and I was like, can I have a sip of that? And I did. And on the spot, I decided it's going to be a drinking tour of Europe. So I was in my sex and love addiction. I was starting to dabble into alcohol and starting to get into that. And uh, that was around 21 and things as they do just progressed. and got bigger um, until I was about 30 or so. And then at that point, having, even though I'd grown up around addiction all my life and because of that thought like that can't be me, that that can't apply to me. That's, you know, I'm not addicted to anything. I'm just better, smarter, faster, and cooler than everyone else. The rules of the little people don't apply to me. Of course, underneath that, I thought I was just a very low human being. And if anyone really knew who I was and what I was doing, I'd be kicked to the curb. And given some of the stuff that I was doing, that might even be accurate. But around 30 or so, I hit a wall with it. And um, part of that wall was going to see a therapist. And the therapist in the first few minutes of the session said, have you ever looked at like addiction? And she was thinking at the time, specifically sex addiction. I didn't have it on my radar that I should quit drinking. Um, and the truthful answer was no. I didn't know even that existed. But... I started to get into it. And as I did, um, obviously, as you can imagine, as happens, my life started to get better. And then, it, you know, I was not sure if I could keep it up. I didn't know if I wanted it for sure, but I knew my life was better. And I knew it was only get worse if I kept going. 
So just as I sort of progressively gotten into addiction, I progressively got into recovery. So I started recovering around sex and love addiction. Um, later, I quit alcohol. Um, then I joined a recovery program around family issues and recognizing family patterns, like for family members of people who have had addiction issues. And then later, I got into one for money. Now I'm in one around money run business. Um, I don't know if there's another program in my future. If there is, my life will want to get better. But if it's like all the others, I'll go in kicking and screaming. <laughs> <laughs> but either way, through all of this, um, I started working in the recovery field. And one day someone said, you should be a counselor. I'm like, I don't know, school's never worked out. But one of the big things they did is they had me sit in a family workshop, like just like sit in the back, fly on the wall, don't say anything, don't breathe too hard, but sit and watch what happens. And when I watched what happened, when everybody was in that moment sober and talking to each other and learning how to communicate with each other and getting education on what happened, my mind was blown. I was just like, wow, there is so much power when families get involved in recovery. Not that they're going to get somebody sober, but just they're looking at recovery. And one of the big themes in that workshop is that everyone in the family needs their own recovery. It's not just about the identified patient, the person with the problem. It's like everybody needs the recovery. And I remember, you know, we were handing out these little notebooks with like worksheets and stuff like that. And I went up afterwards to the person who was actually facilitating the workshop. And I said, can I take one of those home? Like, I think I need to read this. And I, maybe my wife and I could go over this stuff because I'm seeing these same family patterns. So this roundabout way of saying it, this became a passion as part of my work. And I love working one-on-one -on -one with people who are new in recovery or long-term recovery, years of recovery. But I also really love working with family members. And I looked around one day and I was like, I'm looking for like a really good book to recommend to family members. And I'm not slamming any, any of the books that are out there, but at least at the time when I was looking, almost every book I could find was pretty much straight memoir. It was like, you know, my son's journey through addiction or, you know, standing by my spouse through addiction or some, you know, variations on that. And some of them were great books, classics in the field that helped lots of people. I was looking for like a hands-on how-to guide, like something that just says, here's what's going on in your loved one's brain. Here's what it means when they go to treatment. Here's what all those treatment acronyms mean. Here's what it means when they get out, what to expect. How do you communicate? How do you set boundaries? What's enabling? All that kind of stuff. And, um, so once I finished my education and I have a little more breathing room, a couple of years after graduation, I was like, I think it's time to write that book. And so that became my first book. And I still love working on that. And as I was saying before we started this, that led me, writing the book before it was published, led me to start the podcast, Addiction and the Family, and start saying, can we put more resources out there for family members of people around addiction? And I have enough people I see in early recoveries, like my family doesn't get it. And it's nice to be able to say, well, here's a podcast they could listen to, or here's a book they could read, or here's some resources. Maybe they'll look at it. Maybe they won't. You can't control that. But at least there's something out there for people. Mm -hmm. I love that and how it just kind of, you organically started the podcast. You saw a need. And I mean, in, in both spaces, the podcast, the book, you see a need, you couldn't find what you were looking for. And you just decided that all right, I'm going to be the one that, that writes that book. I'm going to be the one that starts that podcast. I'm going to share the knowledge that I have with people that are struggling. And and I agree with you. There's not a lot of resources for families. I've interviewed uh, a, a small majority of, of people on, the, on my show, and there's not a lot of people that are in that family 
camp that that have found those resources to help. You know, there's there's Al-Anon and there's counseling and stuff, but there's not a lot of books, not a lot of programs and stuff for family members. And like you said, it's more than just the person that was in addiction that needs that recovery, that needs that healing. It, when when we're in our addiction, we are affecting everyone around us, our friends, our family, everyone. And so, of course, if if we want that true healing, we need to involve everybody that, that was touched by the addiction. Absolutely. And uh, I'll say when I first sat down to write the book, my first thought is like, well, maybe there's a book out there like this that someone's already done. Like maybe they've already done it. Like the world doesn't need this book. I'll maybe I'll write something else or to take a break. And I did find one um, and I don't remember the exact title and, and I don't want to, you know, pull it in here anyway, but I just remember thinking like, okay, these, you know, some people that had like great professional credentials and all this kind of stuff. And they were doing a, you know, I was like, well, let me kind of see what they're doing. I don't want to like rip anything off, but just kind of see what they're doing. And when I opened it up, almost the very first thing it said in the book, it was like, all right, family members, it's probably down to you to save your loved one. Mm. And I thought like, that's kind of the opposite of what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm saying family members is down to you to take care of yourself. You can't save your loved one. Um, there was nobody that was going to stop me in my addiction when I wanted to be in my addiction. And by the same, by the same token, I run into a lot of family members and I had someone earlier today saying, well, I just want to say the right things and I don't want to screw it up. And I'm afraid I'm going to make a mistake and they're going to relapse, you know, talking about their loved one who's in early recovery. And I said, you know, good news, bad news, you know, the bad news is you can't get them sober. You can't change their mind. You can't keep them from feeling a certain way. That's also the good news. You can't keep them from being sober. You cannot screw up somebody's sobriety. Family members say, well, what if I, what if I make a mistake? And they relapse. I said, the only mistakes I can think you could make is when they're fast asleep, you pour alcohol in their mouth, or you shoot them up with drugs. Short of that, you can't screw up their sobriety. You have no power to mess it up. So you just be you. I, you know, I'd say be kind to people, say it nicely, whatever. But even if you don't, if you start yelling and screaming and throwing things at them, they can still stay sober. And I think it's important for family members to be able to hear that. And also, honestly, for people in early recovery to be able to hear that too, because I could get it in my head that like, oh, well, I need my spouse to treat me a certain way um, so I can stay sober. I need people to be nice to me. So I, you know, I need some back rubs around here so I can be sober. I had a young woman sit down in a family workshop one time and say, so my husband told me that um, we need to have sex every day so he can stay sober. I'm like, oh, honey, hold on. <laughs> that is not a thing. <laughs> you don't need to do anything for him, for him to stay sober. You guys want to sleep together, have a great time, but don't do it because you think it's going to keep somebody sober. And it's important for us, you know, when we're earning early recovery, people in recovery from addiction ourselves to recognize I don't need anybody to treat me a certain way for me to be sober. I just need to decide to be sober and do the work that that takes. And that doesn't involve anybody else doing it right, quote unquote. It involves mm. me putting in the effort and having the determination to do that. Yeah, for sure, man. And, and I think, but but it's so easy for us to fall into that trap because I know for me, especially in early recovery, it's so easy for me to try to point the blame. It's this person's fault. It's because of this, you know, all these excuses that I could come up with and not wanting to do that work of looking at myself, seeing my own part, realizing that it's ultimately me who has the addiction. It's me that has the problem and I have to find that solution. I have to start doing that work and, and healing the trauma and, and I can't blame it on, my living situation. I can't blame it on my parents. I can't blame it on my wife. I can't blame it on my friends. I can't blame it on whoever 
at the end of the day, it's me. And like you said, I, I, I made this, the decision to be in recovery. So it's up to me to stay in recovery and these outside influences, these events that happen in my life, I can no longer use those as excuses to relapse or to go back out or whatever. That was a, that was a difficult pill for me to swallow in the beginning because for so long I had always used that as an excuse, you know, whatever deflect, it's not my fault or it's because of this or whatever. So I, I totally get that. Yeah, I think one of the things that I had to come to terms with in that was to recognize that I was always sure somewhere on some deep level that I was a horrible person. I was sure there was something just fundamentally flawed or wrong with me, and that's why these things happened. And I was desperate to find somebody to blame so that I wouldn't have to look at that pain. And what was beautiful in recovery for me and recovery is sort of the big thing, like going to meetings, um, exploring different recovery fellowships, going to therapy, especially with a therapist who understands addiction. And that's really important. I reiterate that for people. You know, if I have a problem with addiction, I want to see a therapist who understands addiction. Just like if I have a heart problem, I go see a doctor who understands heart problems. I don't see an ear, nose, and throat guy for my heart problem. Well, same sort of thing. So finding a therapist who, in, in my case, was somebody in recovery for similar issues. That doesn't have to be the case, but it was, it was the case for me. So somebody who really gets addiction recovery. And in doing that work, what I found is facing that fear and that pain was at times difficult and scary, but it was nowhere near as bad as I thought. And what was really beautiful, and I found this for myself, and I found this for countless other people that I've had the pleasure to work with, who I've just seen go through the process, is I discovered that underneath that concept of a flawed, broken human being, there was somebody really beautiful that I could love inside me. And I would never have suspected that. I might've projected it out of the world. I might've told people, oh yeah, no, I really, I really feel good about myself and all that kind of stuff. But underneath, I would have been like, yeah, but I really don't. But underneath that, like the core at the very, at the very core center of my being um, is somebody who I've found that I really love. And that I really enjoy my own company in like a good way, not like egotistical or needing to brag or prove something, just being able to be with myself. And uh, it was Blaise Pascal and I want to say 17th century, somewhere in there. I forget exactly when Pascal lived, but he said something to the effect of all of man's problems come from our inability to sit quietly in a room by ourselves. And I really got that because I couldn't do that for the longest time. And in recovery, I learned how to do that. And what's really nice about that is when I was able to see that in myself, then it became much easier to see it in other people and to be able to look someone in the eye who's in early recovery in that same struggle and say, don't worry, you're a good person. This self-exploration is not going to lead you to worse and worse and worse news. The news will start to get better. You have to dig through the yuck, through the stuff you don't want to look at, through the painful things, through the self-blame and the shame and the lack of self-forgiveness and lack of forgiveness or all the things. But as you do that, you're going to discover you're a much better person than you think you are. And getting to watch that come true for people is uh, a pretty priceless experience. However, whether it's therapy, going through 12 steps, going through smart recovery, I don't care how they're doing it, all of the above. As people go through that and getting to see them discover who they really are underneath all the other stuff, that is pretty amazing. And uh, I haven't found an upper limit yet. You know, I haven't found like a limit where you go like, well, it only gets so good. And I guess that's the end. It's like, no, it just keeps getting better. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with you. And 
and there's there's a cliche or it might be in the literature somewhere i can't remember but i but i remember hearing it on early on in my recovery journey was that if we had if we had written down the things that we expected to get out of recovery that we would be selling ourselves short and i think that that is so true because you know when i first got in recovery the things that I wanted were so simple. Like I want to get off probation. I want to get my driver's license back. I want to get a good job. Like all these things that in the moment were like these big goals and things. Now I look back, you know, almost eight years later and go, Oh yeah, that all that stuff happened a long time ago. And I'm still, you know, I'm still progressing. I'm still, you know, not just, not just the material things, but I'm also progressing spiritually and I'm, I'm beginning to dig down into deeper levels of myself and start to realize things about myself and start to see, like you were talking about going through those fears and, and the things that, that are painful, but at the same time that, that once we start to, to dissect those things, they aren't as bad as we think they're going to be. It's not as painful as we think it's going to be. It's not as scary as we think it's going to be. And once we get through that and we're on the other side, we can see, you know, we can start to see that growth. And I think that that is, like you said, like I haven't found that ceiling yet. And it, it just amazes me because I had all these ideas and looking at them now, like they're so small and it's just like, I don't know where my life is going to go, but as long as I continue to stay in recovery, I know that it's going to continue to get better. Absolutely. And you know, there's going to be pain along the way. There's going to be tragedy I and mean, it's just human life. But I have a sense now I can get through all that and I never have to go through it alone. And that's a really beautiful thing. And in general, yeah, man, I, I could look at any aspect and facet of my life and tell you where it's gotten better than it was. And when I came in, I didn't even want anything. I just wanted to stop losing things. I was like, oh, okay, here's, I have, I had a, like a long list of things that I didn't want to lose. I didn't have anything that crossed my mind that I wanted to gain from recovery. You know, I just didn't want to lose my job or my wife or the, the opportunity to raise my kid who was two years old at the time. I didn't want to lose any of that. I didn't want to lose my legal status, or my freedom. I didn't want to lose things. It didn't occur to me there was anything to gain. Um, so when people were, you know, I remember probably my first meeting, there was a guy there and he had had two strikes in the California penal system, which meant like if he made the wrong move, he was going away 25 to life guaranteed. And he was a guy who at the very beginning, like my first meeting smiled and said, don't worry, it gets better. And he said this thing that made so little sense to me at the time. He said, uh, he said, you know, right now you're going to feel like you're trying to like move and crack boulders, but you know, they'll crack, they'll move, they'll get smaller. You'll be dealing with rocks. And then one day you're going to like look around and you're sifting through sand, looking for gold. And I was like, so I just don't want to lose my wife and my house. <laughs> like, I don't know what you're talking about, but okay. But now I can look back just with so much gratitude for that guy, mm. you know, guy named Mike. I don't know if any chance Mike's out there listening right now. I just want to say thank you, man, because he was able to look at me and say, basically, there is hope. It gets better. And there's so much more in this for you than you would possibly imagine. I, I would never have looked around and said, not that podcast, I mean, 24 years ago, podcasting didn't exist, but let's just say like, you know, I never would have thought like, oh, I'm going to be doing the, you know, interviews, I'm going to be writing books, I'm going to have a master's degree. I mean, none of that stuff was even on the horizon. And one of the most important parts of my recovery is my spirituality at this point. And I wanted less than nothing to do with that. I, like they said a prayer at the end of the meeting, I'm like, oh, yeah, mm, uh, I don't know about that. 
and my connection to my higher power, uh, who I choose to call loving kindness, is precious to me. And I can't imagine living my life without it. But when I came in recovery, I couldn't imagine living my life with it. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I would love if you could for the listeners that haven't read the book. So your second book is titled Spirituality for People Who Hate Spirituality, which fantastic title. Like as soon as you you sent that to me and I saw the title, I was like, I was intrigued and I wanted to know more about the book and what was in it. But maybe you could give us just like a brief synopsis of what your journey was like. And um, I, I have a couple little things from the book that I'd love to talk about, but I'd love to hear just kind of give the audience like a, an overview of, of the book. Well, sure. I'd love to, obviously <laughs> ask any author about their book, man. Look at going. So, <laughs> so this book uh, sprang up out of finishing up the first book and kind of think like, okay, now I need to, you know, get out there with this book. And I like to say, I don't have any character defects. My higher power can't put to good use. So one of the character defects that can still pop up for me is pride and still that desire for affirmation, all those kinds of things. But I mentioned I'm in a recovery program around money and I didn't used to know that that would exist, let alone that it apply to me, but it's changed my life. And in the course of working the recovery around that, I sometimes get together with a couple of people in the program and we'll kind of talk like they'll go over my finances and all this kind of stuff. Or I can say, hey, I'm making this big decision. So one of the big decisions was, should I publish this first book, like self-published, I'm going to be putting my own money up. It's going to be a little over $1,000 to, you know, hire somebody to, you know, do this part and hire somebody to do that part and then put it out in the world. And, uh, you know, this is uh, just about a year ago now. So this would have been like September, October of last year. And I was like, well, should I spend the money? And one of the two people in that group, I know in a very well-meaning way, but he was kind of like, well, you know, Casey, I mean, you know, I, I published a book, made a couple hundred bucks. It's not that big a deal. And then he made this comment that stuck with me. He said, you know, Casey, a lot of people have one book in the book. How many people have two books? And then my little pride went off and I went, oh, I'll bet I have two books. Watch this. So my pride and ego came in, but I'd like to say my higher power got in there also, because as soon as I finished the first book, the idea really, as sometimes happens for me, the title of the second book, Spirituality for People Who Hate Spirituality, popped in my head. And I went like, oh, I think I need to write that book because of my own journey around spirituality, which, like I said, I came in wanting less than nothing to do with it. And as I talk about a little bit in the book, because I do try and weave some of my own story in there, um, you know, I had it, I was kind of raised with a very nominal spiritual upbringing. You know, we went to a church at the time. I probably couldn't have told you which church. I mean, I, I would recognize it, you know, in a lineup of churches, but I wasn't really paying attention. Um, in high school, I really got into like debating with people that were religious. It was an interesting subject for me, but it was mostly something that was sort of fun to argue with people about. Um, was there some spiritual seeking down near the bottom of that? Possibly. But my experience of it was just like, this is fun to argue about because I can logic them to death. College, like some people do, I kind of dabbled in it a little bit, tried to get really serious about it, got in with a really hardcore church um, with a religion. I don't even know if you'd call it a denomination exactly. It was a group of people that were certain that the end times were coming. I, don't, I wouldn't call it a cult, but 
I started to recognize it was, they talked a lot about a certain personality, this guy that went like from little group to little group to little group. And it was hardcore in the way of like, um, you know, as a sign of faith that the end times are coming, like we don't buy things if we can rent them because renting them shows that we have faith that, you know, it's not going to be ours anyway. And I stuck with that for about six months. Um, and I really looked around one day and thought, I don't know if I believe any of this. Like, I don't know if this is resonating for me. And right around that same time, and this is where the sex and love addiction comes back in, one of my roommates was like, hey, my, my hard rock band is playing down at this local club. And, uh, you know, and my girlfriend's going to be doing the wet t-shirt contest. You want to come? And I'm like going like, well, the religious thing I believe says I really shouldn't be there, but I'm not sure if I believe it. And, and so um, I looked around, I was like 19. So I hadn't really gotten into any kind of drug at the time. And I was like, don't even do the drugs, just sex and rock and roll is enough. I'm out. And so I decided I was done with all religion, spirituality. That was the end of it for me. And uh, I met a young woman who I'm married to now, who uh, was into self-growth and kind of into more like new age, hippie trippy spirituality. And I kind of like, okay, that's interesting. You know, I didn't really take a lot of it on, but it was like, okay. And then I got in recovery and in recovery, they said, okay, you need a higher power. And I'm like, I really don't. Uh, well, you need some kind of spirituality. No, I'm pretty sure I, no, I don't think so. I, I'll go to meetings. I'll read the stuff. And, uh, but I'm not going to get deep in the spirituality thing. But what I found was I wasn't staying sober. Like I could put together a stretch. I could do three months, six months. I think I went a year and a half at one point. And then I go out for sometimes like an hour or two. And I'd be like, Oh God, this doesn't feel right. Show back up another 24 hour chip. And I eventually got very tired of that. I was like, yeah, because remember, I thought I was the bestest, smartest, fastest thing in the room, but everyone else is getting sober and not me. And people are talking about like this serenity that I'm not feeling. I'm like, ah, I don't get it. So I called one of my mentors in recovery and he said, you know, he was good natured about it, but he said, you know, so are there any things in the program that you're maybe not doing? And I'm like, ah, not doing any spiritual stuff. I don't pray. I don't meditate. I don't have a higher power. Well, you think maybe if you try something different, you might get something different. Yeah, probably. So I started in and uh, I started to try praying and I started praying and I was sure that I was praying to thin air and nothing. And I was being foolish and silly, but it was better than just keep on getting the same thing. Like I'll try something different to get something different. So I started praying every day. And as I talk about in the book, in a, in a section about like is science against spirituality, is it really science versus spirituality, that I thought I could treat this like a science experiment. So what's the scientific method? First, I'm going to pose a question. So here's my question. Can spirituality make my life better? I'm going to look around and see, has anyone else taken on this question before? Turns out lots of people have. What do you know? Is there a reasonable design for an experiment that I, that's already exists that I can use? Or can I come up with an experiment to test this? What's my hypothesis? My hypothesis was originally going to be, can a higher power make my life better through prayer? But I realized that that was impossible to prove. I can't prove a higher power. But what I could do is I could say my hypothesis revised was I can try prayer and see if I feel better. Can prayer make my life feel better? Because that's what I really wanted. Can I stay sober? Can I feel better? Pretty simple experiment. Pray a bunch. And like all things in science, 
the more, you know, the more you replicate your experiment, the more solid data you get, more data points, better you can draw a logical conclusion. From that, did a lot of prayer. And over time, you know, it started to feel better. And I started to be less and less certain that I wasn't talking to anything. And one day I had this amazing experiment where, experiment, experience where I prayed and it wasn't even I had, you know, people talk about this glorious feeling that my higher power loves me. I had this glorious feeling that I loved my higher power. That I was feeling a sense of love towards whatever it is that I was praying to. And I had been advised at a certain point, and I definitely put this in the book, to just write out a list of the qualities that I wanted in a higher power. And at first I thought, that's silly. It's just make-believe. But what I realized is that whether I want to or not, I'm going to be making a decision about what my higher power is like. You know, you talk to everybody who reads any given religious text, and they're going to take different things away from it. They're going to make decisions about what's important, what's not, what do I emphasize, what do I ignore, what's, you know, vital, and what do I go like, well, yeah, we believe that, but all I realize is I can make that a conscious decision. I can say, you know what, since I'm going to be making decisions and all that, why don't I make it a conscious decision? What qualities do I want? You know, loving, kind, can keep me sober has good guidance for me, all that kind of stuff. So I was just praying, thinking like, I'm just praying to whatever meets those qualities. I don't know if there's anything out there, but if there's, I'm praying to that. Everybody else can kindly move along. I'm not talking to you. I'm just talking to whatever is kind and loving and has a good sense of humor, can keep me sober, has better ideas than mine. And it just started to feel more and more like, okay, I can believe that this is helping me. So scientifically, with my experiment, I could prove that my life was feeling better and getting better and that I was getting good ideas. Can I prove I have a higher power scientifically? I can't. As I discovered in the research for this book, it's the wrong part of the brain. The part of my brain that's logic and explanational is not the part of my brain that connects with spirituality, different brain region. Um, so that allows me to let go of the idea that I need to understand my higher power. And what I came to recognize for myself and part of this book was also written coming out of a lot of conversations that I've had with people about this, helping just sharing these things that I found in my own recovery and helping them to find a type of spirituality that can work for them. And as I've said to some people about this book, like I didn't write this book to like get people to be spiritual who don't want to be spiritual. I wrote this book for somebody who thinks it might help them, but doesn't know how to get there. And so the title, you know, spirituality for people who hate spirituality, what I've found is a lot of times when, when it catches somebody's eye, they're probably the right kind of person to read the book. You know, again, it's not somebody who needs to prove that all spirituality is wrong. Go to it, man. I used to be me, you know, have fun. But if somebody's thinking like, I see people who are spiritual get benefits that I don't have. I see people who are spiritual have a sense of peace that I don't have or live a happier life than I'm living. Here are some ways to maybe get through some of the internal roadblocks that get in the way. And uh, so it was, again, in a sense, sort of saying, I'm going to write a book that I would, would like to have had around in my early recovery. But I also realized early on that this could apply to a lot of people who aren't necessarily have anything to do with addiction. They may not be around recovery. They just could be anybody out there that might struggle with spirituality, but would like to know more about it or at least give it a fair shot and has trouble due to internal roadblocks to getting there. Man, 
that was that was so well put and <laughs> yeah that was that was perfect man one of the biggest things that that really stayed with me from the book was the it was in the section uh about feeling upset with the state of the world and you you had the analogy of of being a dog owner and for whatever reason like that just clicked in my head man like the analogy was perfect and it just made so much sense where you're talking about like the dog doesn't understand that we have to go to work and that we provide you know so that we can provide for that dog and then and then you took it a step further and you're talking about the dog like you couldn't explain to your dog what you do when you're at work and and then like taking that and and seeing that as a higher power and me and like just because i don't understand everything that's happening doesn't mean that it isn't ultimately going to be beneficial that it isn't for my own good like i don't know but that was that really stuck with me and i really liked that that section of the book Thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. And uh, I, I have the good fortune to be married to an atheist in recovery. Um, so I had somebody to say, like, you know, I, I, I'd say in a way I was writing the book for like earlier me because I love that expression, you know, we're best suited to help the person we used to be. But I was also kind of writing it for my spouse. Like, hey, honey, could you look at this for a second and kind of see like, you know, and when I was making a list of things that get in the way of spirituality for people um that was one that i remembered from her that she had said like you know yeah it's just the state of the world and i thought like okay what do i do with that and i like to think a lot of this you know again sort of inspiration and intuition which are things that i associate with my higher power was that idea of like i'm looking at my dog and think my dog does not understand almost anything i do and yet manages to trust me anyway but sometimes she just goes off and does her own thing, right? <laughs> sometimes she's like, yeah, I know I know you want me to come, but I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm chasing the rabbit, right? And I thought like, sometimes that's me. Sometimes I'm the one saying to my higher power, like, I know you want me, I know you have my best interest, I know you want me to do this thing, but I'm going to be over here doing my own thing for a while. And then later I'll come back with my tail between my legs and say, okay, what's your idea? I'm going to listen now. Because <laughs> that happens. And that idea of like the gap between me and my dog is presumably a lot smaller than the gap between me and my higher power. Like my higher power, and I don't know if my higher power is like a grandiose thing that runs the universe or not. Um, I, I don't need it to be. But if it is, the level of thought and complexity there is going to just go way beyond anything I can understand. And it crosses my mind sometimes. And I don't remember if I put this in the book or not. But, you know, maybe some of the suffering or things that I go through right now, maybe things that benefit somebody else in 500 years. Maybe I need to do this and live this or whatever so that somebody else's life is better way off in the future. And how could I say that that's not true? And what that does for me is it allows me to have a greater sense of peace. It allows me to get out of self-pity because I don't know about you, but for me, self-pity is right next to relapse. Like the last thing I need is to be in self-pity because then I get into, well, I deserve, and you know, what do I deserve to do? Something self-destructive, ironically enough. But being able to lean into the idea that I don't need to understand everything is a way for me to step out of fear. And when I step out of that fear, I get to step into serenity. And I realized one day sitting in a recovery meeting that that serenity is what I wanted all along. I just thought that if I had enough money, I would be serene. If I had enough sex, I'd be serene. If I had enough affirmation or power or fame or whatever, 
then I'd finally be okay. And somehow I was going to arrange my life. So it was just perfect. Then I'd feel okay. And it would stay that way. I mean, what are the odds? <laughs> That's not what life does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, and I, I think, I think part of the reason too, that that section stuck out to me as well is I feel like that's one of the arguments that I hear when I talk about spirituality with people the most is like, you know, how would a loving God allow, you know, poverty and children to starve and war and floods. And, you know, like there's always a, there's always that, like, I feel like that's one of the biggest arguments that people come up with is like, well, how can this loving God allow these things to happen? And I feel like, that was such a simple way to explain it. And it just, it really did make sense to me because I've had several dogs over the years. And like you said, sometimes they listen and other times they just kind of do whatever they want. And I'm the same way. Sometimes I listen to my higher power and a lot of the times I just do whatever I want and come back and like, okay, that didn't, that didn't really work out the way I thought it might. That's beautiful. And, and it's interesting that also, I think when people get into the idea of like, you know, how can these terrible things happen if there's a loving God um, is based quite honestly in a particular conception of what people even mean by the word God. And I was really struck again when I was researching this book, because like, like the last book and as with the next book, um, you know, I start out feeling like, okay, I know something about this subject so I can write a book about it. But of course, in the course of that, I end up doing a lot of research and learning even more. And I'd say I probably walk out of the, the book with five or 10 times as much knowledge as I walked in, just deeper understanding. And sometimes I'm thinking, you know, I think I kind of know this thing's true. So I'm going to go look up some scientific study and find somebody to agree with me. But then I read a scientific study and it says the opposite of what I expect. I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. Well, in researching this book, um, and thinking about, you know, yeah, how can a loving God fill in the blank, allow the thing? Sometimes, quite honestly, the things that are argued against are uh, very personal, kind of like, how would a loving God allow my sister to die? To which I can only say, I don't know if anyone's been paying attention, but if God's job is to keep us all alive and healthy, if they're doing a terrible job. Um, that is presumably not the purpose. We're not all going to live forever because God loves us. But also, it's rooted in a particular cultural set of assumptions. And so when I was studying, ironically enough, when I was studying atheism for the book, so that I had some idea like, what is it we say when we mean atheist? Because it doesn't always mean the same thing. One thing that was pointed out um, and that I reference in the book is that most atheists really have a bone to pick with one or maybe two religions, tops, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. out of the hundreds or thousands of religious ideas that human beings have had and will continue to have they really single one or two out, usually, usually the biggest ones in their culture, the dominant religion, just because like anything, like, you know, the most powerful country gets all the blame, the most powerful person, you know, and points a finger, well, the most powerful or dominant religion is going to get all the crap thrown at it. So they'll say, all religion is false because this religion is false. It's like, you're not considering most religions. You're, you're missing almost everything. There are so many ways to conceive of a loving higher power that don't involve um, having to control everything in the universe. Like for my purposes in my life, I don't need a higher power that gets me a better parking spot. It's just not an issue. I can use a, a loving higher power that helps me guide me through my disappointment at the parking spot I got. That's actually more useful in my life. Um, I don't need a higher power 
that changes everything around me to my liking. In fact, that's probably a bad idea because then I stop learning things and I stop growing. I need a higher power who guides me through the lessons that are here in front of me. And uh, that gets me out of the whole, what basically an argument that comes down to why does God not do things my way? And uh, my simple answer to that is I don't need a God who does things my way. <laughs> that, that does not teach me anything, nor does it come up with any better ideas that I had on my own. If my higher power always agrees with my ideas, then I don't need a higher power. And my life has shown me that I do. And, and coming also back to that idea that um, just because I don't understand it doesn't mean it's wrong. Mm-hmm. And that same way that I hear people, you know, if, if, if there's an argument, you know, sometimes say, well, you just don't understand. As if it's possible, as if it's not possible to understand something and still disagree with it. But in this case, I can disagree with it and not understand it and say, like, I don't know the answer. And I know that when someone is in grief and pain, it's not super reassuring to hear, you know, why did my loved one die? Go like, oh, I don't know. Um, but if I can say, you know, over time, and I know this in my profession, that over time, as someone works through a grief process, sort of the holy grail in that is to get to that point where I feel a sense of acceptance. And usually acceptance is found because I find meaning in it. And is that meaning inherent to it? Or do I assign that meaning? It kind of doesn't matter. It's where I find meaning, where I say I can say, as so often happens in recovery, I have been through this horrible thing. I can give it meaning by using that experience to help somebody else. Now, it doesn't feel like it's a horrible thing. In fact, people will often say, actually, I'm kind of grateful that I became addicted. I'm grateful that I went through this horrible experience. I wouldn't choose it again, but I'm grateful that I went through it because without having gone through that, I would not have the depth of character that I have. I would not be the person that I am. So when I look back at some of the seeming disasters in my life, you know, uh, a self-imposed financial disaster had me selling my house and moving from one state to another. Well, if I hadn't gone through that, I wouldn't have stumbled into the treatment center where I started working in the field. If I hadn't done that, I wouldn't be sitting here right now having written two books with a master's degree. I wasn't even thinking about any of that. I was trying to make it in the music business. This had nothing to do with anything. The only way I got here was through miracles and disasters. And what I'm discovering over time is that sometimes I don't actually know which one's which. Mm. Mm. I like that. I like that. Well, Casey, we're getting towards the end of the time. So I would love if you could let the listeners know where they can find your podcast, where they can find your books. If you have websites, social media, how people can connect with you. And if they want to learn more, where they can do that. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So um, my name is Casey Arriaga. I'll spell it for you. It's A-R-R-I-L-L-A-G-A. I have a podcast called Addiction and the Family. You can find it on any podcast app, you know, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the, all the things. Um, you can also find us at addictionandthefamily.info, like information, addictionandthefamily.info. I'm on Twitter at, see the little handle is at addictionfamily. And the books are Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other uh, Addictions. And the second one is called Spirituality for People Who Hate Spirituality, a primer. And both of those are available on Amazon and some other electronic booksellers in both paperback and electronic form. And you can always email me at 
addictionandthefamily at gmail.com. Love to hear from anybody. Awesome. Well, Casey, thank you so much for coming on today, man. It's been a pleasure talking with you. I appreciate I appreciate the book and just I need to reread it again, man, because there's so much in there. And I, yeah, it's just it, it's hard reading through it one time and, and soaking all that information in, man. But there were definitely a lot of high points in there that stuck out and things that got me thinking. And it's a, a very well-written book. And if there's anybody that's struggling with spirituality or or they're in that place where they're not really sure they have questions or they're not sure about spirituality at all. Like this is a great place to start and, and really dig in there and see a lot of different elements of spirituality and what is and isn't spirituality and higher power, God, all the different terminology that we throw around in it. It's, it's a really well-written book. So I appreciate you sending me a copy of that. And I would recommend it to anybody that's, that's in that category that is, is, uh, is a person that hates spirituality, but is interested in spirituality. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Casey, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was an absolute pleasure talking with you. If you guys are interested in his podcast, addiction and the family or either of his books, be sure to check out the links in the show notes. You've been listening to Recovery Survey. If you got anything out of today's episode, I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media where you can get previews for upcoming episodes.